Hello and thank you for listening to episode 353 of 60MW. I'm Dave. And I'm Tom. And this is part one of our interview show with the samurai cop himself, Matt Caridas, or as he was known when we recorded this show and in Samurai Cop, Matt Hannon. Because Tom, we recorded this in July 2014. Yeah, no need for guessing games with this one. It was a... Uh... <laughs> It was a big part of our lives at this point in time, wasn't it? All oh. everything going on with this, with this and Matt. Most definitely. I mean, this is we recorded this just a month after his daughter put the video of him on YouTube, where of course everybody thought he was dead. They thought he was dead for years, yeah. and you'll hear about it, you know, in, in the podcast, of course. Uh, yes, yeah, such uh, an amazing piece of news for fans of Samurai Cop. And then what a story for us, you know, when we're doing his picture house and. How fortunate in a way that IMDb screwed it all up and marked it down as a film from 1989 originally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the whole thing. Um, IMDb marking is something from 1989. So obviously we talked about it, did a commentary for it. Yeah, our fan. IMDb was the place, I think, IMDb was the place where I saw um, he was alive. Um, and then obviously we jumped on that. Of course we did, and so glad that we did, because what, what a film it is. Uh, anybody listening to this, surely everybody listening to this has watched Samurai Cop, and if you haven't, go and watch it immediately. Uh, but yeah, the fan commentary that we did then got used on the Blu-ray for Samurai Cop. Yeah. Uh, we're in Samurai Cop 2. Uh, I went hosted the world premiere in LA of it. We hosted the UK premiere in London at the Prince Charles of it. Yeah. Uh, the students filmed part of a scene for it that, that that part that we're in matt came to my university and did a talk to them uh we become really good friends you know we'd swap messages i was saying to you tom we're just chatting the other day with him there's lots of stuff going on and so yeah it's a, it's a really good time to release this because 1991 is of course 30 years ago it's the 30th anniversary of samurai cop mate which is crazy isn't it 30 years of keeping it warm <laughs> What a great way of putting it. <laughs> and of course, fans of the film will get that reference straight away. Uh, yeah, 30 years ago. And of course, you know, we talked to me, Samurai Cop 2, we just mentioned that there wasn't the film that fans wanted, wasn't the film that Matt wanted. Uh, he really does want to make this into a trilogy, finish the Samurai Cop story, finish the Joe Marshall story the way that it should be. And all I'm mm. going to say at this point it's just Samurai Cop 3. Now, there's ways that you can help with Samurai Cop 3. The first thing that you can do is share this episode with your friends and fans of uh, of that great movie. And email us, or send us a tweet even, if you would be interested in watching Samurai Cop 3. That's all you need to do, a few seconds of your time. And like I say, we're talking to Matt all the time, and if you want that to happen you need to start engaging with us and send us some stuff. I can't say any more at the moment. <laughs> so that's it's really easy. That's all you need to do. Uh, so, that yeah, part one, this is where Matt talks about his life. He's mentioned many times in the years since we recorded this, when people have asked him questions, he's always said, oh, go and listen to the 80s Picture House podcast and the interview that I did with them, because that's where he went the most in-depth. Uh, and, of course, it's not been available online for a few years, hence why we're re-releasing this as one of our remastered shows. Under, yeah. the, under the decade of decadence banner and like you said tom it was such a pleasure chatting with matt and he really did open up to us didn't he some of the stories that he tells in this show 
Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's really um, interesting stories. This episode is, of course, be, um, leading up to Samuel Cop, his his life pre, pre-cop. <laughs> pre, pre-cop, yeah. Uh, and of course, stories about working with Stallone as well amongst, yeah, the, amongst yeah, the them. Yeah, bodyguard yeah. for Stallone. It's definitely the highs and lows of Matt's life. And with, yeah. yeah, with no holds barred, definitely. So you're going to hear all about that pre-Samurai Cop. And in part two, which will be the next episode that we release, uh, it's us and Matt talking about the movie itself, his experience of being on the film, all the stories from there. So, yeah, it's uh, a good double header for you Samurai Cop fans to listen to. So, uh, yeah, and good good to revisit. It was good to revisit and listen after, I can't believe it's seven years almost that we recorded this. (laughs) Uh, Right, so everybody... Sit back, relax, get comfortable. Listen to these awesome stories by Matt. And don't forget, send us an email. Send us a tweet. Do you want Samurai Cop 3 to happen? Do you want it to be better than number two? Yes, of course you bloody do. Let's make make it happen and start by sending us an email. All right, that's enough of us. Here's me, Tom, and Matt. Hey, guys, it's Matthew Hannon, and I'm... Happy to be here on the 80s Picture House. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to share my life uh, stories prior to the infamous Samurai Cop and after. And uh, I'm looking forward to a, an exciting conversation with the guys. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the 80s Picture House and the 33rd of our In Conversation With series. I'm Dave and as always I'm joined by my fellow co-host Tom. Hello. Uh, And today this is is quite a special one for a number of reasons and uh, so special we're splitting this In Conversation into two parts. So this is part one of two. Uh, And the guy we're going to talk to today, well, we've got so much to chat about. He is the samurai cop himself. It's the one and only Mr. Matt Hannon. Hello, Matt. Hello. Hello, Great Britain. That was my my welcome last time, too. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. This is hilarious. From the grave and now onto the show. Exactly. I know. I mean, we normally do these things sort of in, uh, in chronological order, but I've got to start it because I'm sure there's many listeners around the world are thinking the same thing and they're thinking, holy shit, you're alive. I mean, this is just incredible. I mean, it started... Let's do this a bit different. Let's let's start not too long ago, June the twenty first. You put the the video on YouTube to say that. Or the, we, yeah, we could say the video appeared. I'll have to give you the story on that one. But yeah, oh, okay, then yeah. It's, so, it's almost been a month now, hasn't it? Today, yeah. Today's twentieth. So what's what's wow. the background story to leading up to that video going on? I mean, I know. Um, I mean, but you tell a story about I know it's to do with your daughter that had something to do with that. So what? How did it all begin? The, the, the story of you putting that video up on YouTube. She had, um, and again, I think from age maybe fourteen when when she was exposed to YouTube, um, actually searched and found the movie clips that had been out there. Unfortunately. And of course, as a father with a daughter, I'm, you know, which scenes I'm talking about were a little ridiculous for her to view. But anyway, she, as she grew older, um, used to check back in and out with those IMDb pages and the YouTube pages. And then um, I think a couple of years ago, was that when the rumor went out that apparently I had passed away or the other guy named Matt Hannon? Yeah, 2012. Um, yeah. 
was it was it twelve? Okay, yeah. So it's already been two years. And then uh, I think she she saw that and brought it to my attention and said, "Hey, Dad, did you know that they think you're dead?" And I'm like, "Fantastic! Let's just leave that as is, and uh, maybe this will all go away." And I and again, and again, I didn't realize what was really going on as far as the the massive cult following that had begun. And um, <clears throat> she'd been bugging me for a year. You know, Dad, just post something. Let them know you know, that you're alive and everything shit's the wrong guy and blah, blah, blah. And then I just kept putting it off, putting it off. And then I was um, in my place in the kitchen one day and I put up my iPhone. And of course, I just thought, all right, let me put something up if I was going to do it. So I basically said what I said. And then I uh, sent it off to her. And I said, if I do something, is this kind of what you want me to do? do something like this and then she immediately went to get possession of that <laughs> just went and posted it to my um uh youtube account which she knows that stuff i never set that up she had set it up for me years ago and then i put it under that brian mcafelli um name because that's what i did my stand-up comedy name under and uh so she knew the password and everything and she just uploaded it and then all of a sudden it was out there and she calls me hey go take a look and i was Curious, because it's like, what kind of moron goes with his shirt off to speak to <laughs> anonymous people, you know, without, but, and, and then again, I was also um, a little, uh, I don't know, I, I wouldn't say politically correct, but I think I did say uh, something to the effect of, you know, what a retarded film this was or something like that, which is a somewhat uh, derogatory towards Amir because that was his vision, of course. And then to the fans out there that, that loved it, you know, it's like, but again, I was coming from not being exposed to what I've been exposed to now in the last month and not realizing just how much fun people have had from this. I was taking it from that serious point of view of, I can't believe I did that. What a waste of time. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping it's dead and buried and love or show up, but that's basically how it got out there. Mm-hmm. And it's been a really crazy month for you as well, hasn't it, since that video went online? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was uh, instantly my um, my emails, I guess, on the uh, IMDB, it notifies your email if somebody posts something. So that literally started blowing up. And then uh, Greg Hatsunaka from uh, Cinema Epic had sent me a, uh, a little note saying, you know, and it said who he was. And I basically, I tried to remind him, I thought, Maybe a year ago, um, when I saw, uh, I think I ordered on Amazon.com the actual Samurai Cop DVD to see the commentary, and I think it was either Robert Zadar or maybe Peters, and I and I noticed that um, somehow it went back, and I saw Greg's name, and I tried to Google that company and find out, and I basically at that time even reached out and said, "Hey, if you're looking." For an interview, I'm still here. But again, he probably thought it was an imposter. And I think he just ignored it because he, <laughs> he didn't remember seeing that. But um, yeah, and then uh, and then to just like I said, my emails on my iPhone, I had four different emails. I would turn on the iPhone and all of a sudden I had 174 in my inbox. And then the oh, next, uh, I, I'd clear it all. And then uh, six hours later, there'd be 190. And it was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so it was just amazing to, to see that. And then it's just to read the post. And then again, it just became more personal with, with fans. And it was kind of like, um, I just, I went and rewatched it again. And then I tried to get into it and I understand that it wasn't a thespian performance, but it's become love because it is so ridiculous, yet uh, it's love. It's like an ugly dog that's just so ugly and cute. <laughs> and it's, it's the same, I think, with the movie. So, 
Because what I'll do, I think it's a good point now. I'm going to point out that um, I said at the start, we're going to split this into two. Part one that we're going to talk now with Matt is going to be about everything but uh, on-set stories from Samurai Cop 2. And then in part two, we're going to be digging deep into Samurai Cop 2. <laughs> digging deep. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to dig into there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but this the whole rumour of about that you you died started. There was a funeral home uh, obituary, wasn't it, that uh, Matthew Hannon had died. And I think somewhere within the write-up it mentioned that uh, he did, did some sort of film work and then people just, however, you know, the internet works and all the the spider's web of, uh, of like, well, not lies, but like untrue stories started appearing, that it was you, that it was you linked to it. So when... When was the first time that you were aware that apparently people thought you were dead? Well, I think I had uh, seen it, like I'd said, in, either on the YouTube or the IMDb uh, posts. And then um, I even responded, I think, to somebody on IMDb. And I said, hey, it's me. And I was cryogenically frozen in the late 80s or whatever. And I, I made that joke. But then everyone was like, yeah, right. This guy's just a goofball trying to pretend to be you know, Matt Hannon. And <clears throat> so I realized, wow, they really must think he's dead. And then I looked into it a little bit more and saw, I didn't realize how, and I think there's a post up on, somebody has a Facebook page up with my name on it. And, um, and I think he said he basically created it to bring me out to, to make my own Facebook page. But mm. there's a picture of the guy, actually Matt Hannon, who looks completely nothing like me at all. So it was a high nice, school. <laughs> senior picture and I'm thinking why wouldn't anybody look at that and realize wait a minute not the same guy and I think he was four or five years older than I I think he was 56 I, I'm 50 yeah. now and I guess he's 56 mm -hmm. and and then I started to feel bad for his family because someone actually had sent me um I think via YouTube because unfortunately that's the only way I can be contacted right now but anyway uh, explaining to me and apologizing for being the guy that started that rumor because he or she, I think it was maybe even a female, had done so much research and traveled to Ohio and, like you had said, tried to find the tombstone and tried to contact the family members. That I was just like, wow, I knew this was just so crazy. And I just felt like bad for the guy. I don't know to what degree they did harass his family, <laughs> but uh, it was like, uh, it's just, it's just odd. And then, like I said to, to you guys, that um, in order for me to kind of grasp what you all had um, experienced, because even I think Ramrod had said during your one of your shows, you know, oh, this, this is the one or two year anniversary of Matthew's death and, you know, rest in peace. And it's like then all of a sudden I'm Tom Hanks and Castaway <laughs> coming back to Helen Hunt, who's moved on. You know what I mean? And it was like, I, I think that's the only way I could really look at it from everybody else's point of view and that's why i think when that youtube post went up it just exploded that day i mean greg was calling me after we had spoke via email and then he's like do you understand that you've had a thousand more people view that in less than so i mean it just became and it must have like you said it just kind of funneled through all the uh blogs and um then people were checking to say is that really him and so on and so forth so i mean that's just kind of funny and unique in itself but i never ever thought that or had that as my intention that that was i didn't realize at all that it was this this broad and, and massive a following you said as well that uh, youtube is the only way that people can contact you at the moment as, as everything that's happened over the last month has that encouraged you at all to like dip into facebook and twitter yourself well i have somebody figured out because i have the email the b machiavelli um 
it's the number, or it's actually the, I think it's on the uh, IMDb. My email that I have, which is close to that, which I don't mind giving out, is bmachiavelli, the number eight, at AOL.com. I don't know if I accidentally posted something and they saw that, or I don't know, because all of a sudden then I started getting direct emails, and, and which was fine for me because it's easier to answer because I can't figure out how you go to view all, get on your YouTube account <laughs> again. It's like, and my daughter keeps telling me, Dad, that there's, I have a friend who can set up a page for you. And that's where I run into the problem of the way that I live my life now. It's always been very you know, private, and I've always tried to lay low, and I wasn't looking for the limelight. And we'll obviously get into some of the reasons why. Um, I just, I'm kind of very reclusive. And I never really wanted to join the bandwagon of, um, you know, everybody was into the social media. Now, of course, if you're going to be a professional in the industry as an actor, it's just a given that you have social media, either reps, if you're at a high level of, of, of an actor or whatever, that, uh, but just basically people have a Twitter or a Facebook. And I always just felt, because friends and family had Facebook and they keep saying, oh, why don't you get on? But it just seemed like a gossip um, kind of thing, or everybody always knew, oh, I heard so-and-so went on a camping trip, and or, you know, it was just mm-hmm. frustrating to me, because I just like to keep things private within my family, of, you know, my ex-wife and my two daughters, and, and, and whoever, my immediate family, and I just didn't really want a lot of stuff out there, so I guess it's something that I'm going to have to either come to grips with or <laughs> embrace <laughs> here sooner rather than later. Oh, yeah, I think you're going to have to just bite the bullet and do it. But is there? Do you guys have to spend a lot of time? I mean, I mean, I know Twitter and all that is, is basically instant. But it's like, don't you? It almost seems like you have to be able to have the time to respond and answer to that kind of stuff, or sit down and. I mean, emails are uh, obviously different because I, when I go through emails, you, you may be able to respond. But again, it's uh, it just seems like it's a lot of um, I don't yeah. know contact that you got to keep. It all really depends on how much interaction you want, you know, with the people that want to get in touch with you, really. It's, um, you, this Facebook page is me where... being me, I would love to respond to every single person, but then it's like, oh my God, I mean, you can see how crazy it is. And it's oh, like, yeah. wow, I don't think I can. So that's why I thought maybe like we're doing here, if you can give an interview or at least, and again, I've, I've explained it to you, to, uh, Tina and you guys that it's, it's a weird place for me to be in because, I understand that this is a moment in time and it's not like I think, uh, you know, oh, I'm just this huge star and this is what we, you know, you answer questions and I think I'm this and that. It's just very odd for me because I want to respond to everybody, but I'm always wondering, who does this guy think he is? I mean, you know, all we care about is Samurai Cop and now he wants to talk about. So I do have some people uh, very minimal that say, you know, we don't really care about you. We just care about you know, what happened during the filming. And then you have other people that just kind of really want to know because they said, we've only been exposed to a one dimension of you, which was your performance in mm-hmm. Samurai Cop. Mm-hmm. And as, as some of the posts had said, I just thought you were a, a meathead. But from your YouTubes, like, you know, you seem like you're a nice guy. And so in that respect, I feel like, yeah, maybe it's a, a time to at least let people know a little bit more about me. And then maybe it gives a different perspective of, of what's going on. And you can kind of understand how I'm dealing with um, you know, having to come forward and 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 talk with people, like I uh, mentioned before, the guys from uh, another blog um, had contacted me and wanted to uh, do an interview, and I responded. I said, "Hey guys, no problem. What you have in mind? You know, give me an idea." 
uh, meaning I thought they just want me to call in and chit chat with them. And it turned out they said, hey, you know, what we'd love for you to do is come to our hometown. We'll fly you out. We'll put you up in a hotel. We'll pay your per diem and food and this and that. And we'll have a conversation here in studio. And then we're actually in the process of uh, doing a, a film. And we'd love for you to do a cameo. Well, Matt, me, in my current life, uh, it, even when I travel for work, um, I'm almost like a diva or a prima donna. If I travel <laughs> to the East Coast, I, I will purchase a first-class ticket or I'll buy two coach seats side by side because it never fails. If I'm on that plane and there's one seat left and I'm free, here comes the guy down the aisle, 400 pounds, and sits right next to me. So I swore I would never do that again. And that's part of the reason. So I have room on a flight because being six foot three, you know, I like to have my space. And then the baggage that I bring when I travel because I, I cook my own food. There's herbal teas and certain dietary things that I bring with me. And of course, the hair products alone take up <laughs> one, two days. So, you know, most of the time with each seat, you get two bags. So, and then again, if somebody offers to fly you out now, to the average person, that means, uh, yes, we're going to fly you out, but there may be uh, five plane changes on the way. And then we're going to put you up in a hotel, and it could be in the middle of like a gang infested area, and it's cheap, and we're going to feed you McDonald's. So, again, it, when they say something like that, so again, I pass that along to my brother, who's always handled either my comedic bookings or anything to do with entertainment. He reached out and basically said, you know, well, if Matt does go, you know, he usually does this, this, and this, and maybe it won't be cost effective for you guys. And again, he's under contract with um, Epic, uh, Cinema Epic and Greg on the, on the Samurai Cop sequel, where he cannot do that same likeness anywhere else except for Greg. So mm -hmm. when you mean cameo, if you want him there, you can't do anything Samurai Cop related. So we basically, he basically spelled it out to them. And then he said, you know, it may be just more cost effective to have a phone conversation and then they, of course they responded like hey, you know what never mind it's fine thanks so i don't know if they're thinking what a pompous ass this guy was what is he asking for this and that but it, what it really is is just me being me now without this whirlwind that has just come up mm -hmm. um you know just trying to say well, okay i'd love to do it and again if i leave i'm going to lose out on you know work and my income that i make so you know what i mean it was kind of like that that i have to be really careful now <laughs> because of uh, the interpretations that I feel other people would have. So it's, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. Well, what I'm going to do now, we're, we're just going to leave that point in time. We're going to come back to ev everything that's happened since the videos and, and carry sure. on from, from there until now. But I'm going to jump you right back to this, right back to the very beginning now. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, where did you grow up? You know, what did you do? And what took you, what took you to L.A.? Let's go to that. Um, geez, I don't know. Let me try to make that quick too. Um, <laughs> graduated high school. I did study drama in high school, but I didn't start until my senior year. Um, I don't know why, because ever, uh, since first grade on, I was always the class clown. Um, but I didn't really do any proper theater training until that, uh, fall term and senior year. Uh, breeze through that, the, the acting teacher liked me. The winter term, I believe he put me up into second-year drama, which is normally what you would have done two years earlier. Um, and then by spring term, he had me in third-year and fourth-year drama. He accelerated me through that. And I don't know, if, not to say that I was the Anthony Hopkins, but I believe he thought, you know what, you do have something. There's something about you. You've got you know, a presence in your comedy and whatever. And it, and it was fun for me to do, and then I went on and did some 
local acting tournaments and competitions and either won those or came in second in like dual acting competitions. And then I um, <clears throat> graduated and my father had um, provided for me and my older brother who had just graduated college um, a video store. And of course, this is 1982 when video was just exploding. And he, we opened up a franchise video store called National Video, which later went on to become Hollywood Video. I don't know if they had those over in Great Britain. It's a similar to Blockbuster. Okay. Um, they're, they're, they're just franchised. And so I worked in there for about three years just managing that. And, of course, what I enjoy, obviously, you guys remember just back in the 80s, what it was just crazy. Like I said, back then, the, the VHS movies, uh, the beta, and, the, of course, the infamous Laserdisc, um, you know. <laughs> But And I just had watched movies constantly every day, and then I just kept saying, you know what, I really want to go to Hollywood. I think, you know, I could be super fantastic if I went. I mean, that was the dream. You're a young kid, and like anybody. Um, and then at, at that same time when we opened that and I had just graduated, I started weight training. Uh, my older brother was basically my inspiration and somebody I looked up to, and he had a you know great physique. And I thought, oh, you know what, that's what I want to look like. I'm going to start working out. Besides the fact that, yes, I had seen the Rocky movies, and, you know, um, growing up, people had had that comparison. They said, you know what, you, you resemble Sly a lot. So I, I thought that was great. Oh, I'm going to start looking. And I started boxing and weight training. And then I just graduated. I think I was 178. And then as the summer went on, drinking beer and eating like a pig, I went up to 200 <laughs> and working out. And then it was just keep going, 210, 220, 230, 240, 250. And I went all the way up to 270 pounds. Wow. Just through diets alone, and I know a lot of people that have known me know, but I've never done any steroids or any growth hormone. I just felt if you're going to achieve something, and back then it was all how much do you bench? What can you bench? And I thought if you're benching 300 pounds, but you're on something, it's not like you're really doing it because eventually you're going to stop and then you'll go down and you won't lift. So to me, it was like, let me hit my own personal goals knowing that. I got it because I eat bowls and bowls of pasta and drink gallons of milk and eat bread and pastries. And I mean, I just ate like a monster. <laughs> um, and I think at my heaviest weight at 270, I was benching 420 pounds, which is wow. an amazing amount of weight for somebody not to be on steroids. I can only imagine if I ever did do steroids, I probably easily would have went over 300 pounds and just been a giant. But <laughs> so I had, I had built this body around this, comedy talent and I thought you know what I'm going to go to Hollywood and I'm going to be the next John Candy because they've never had anybody that was muscular but yet funny mm -hmm. because I knew I can't go there and be um, action Jackson guy because you know obviously Sly had that venue and again when I was younger and there are photos out there there was a similarity as we've gotten older it's not as you know the same obviously now he's 68 I'm 50 but anyway <laughs> the uh so I just um, basically left in 19, I think it was 1987, and uh, just said, I'm going to go follow my dream. I had met my wife. Um, she was a senior in high school at the time, and, and we were together for our marriage. We uh, divorced. I divorced her, I think, in 2010. So we were together 30 years. And I just said, I'm going. You're coming with me, babe. I've got you know these aspirations, you know, visions of grandeur that I'm going to be this big hit, blah, blah, blah. And she came along, and, and we uh, left, packed up, I think it was September of 87, and, and uh, came to L.A. Wow. I mean, you just saying then about how big you were. I mean, you've kindly been sending us some photographs, and one of the ones um, is, <laughs> is one where you, you are, you're, you're 
fucking huge is no other way to explain it, I'm afraid. But well, it's yeah, like, I mean, it's like a linebacker physique or a WWF. Exactly, you know, yeah. Hulk Hogan. I mean, that's uh, my brother standing next to me in that photo that I did send you and Tina was, uh, I think he weighed probably 185. So you can see the difference. And I'm, my current weight now is, um, I think I'm 172 actually, but I mean like 4% body fat, which is wafy, extremely wafy. It's not samurai cop where I, I think I weighed 235 during the filming of that. But again, as you get older, you lose muscle mass. A lot of guys are even entertainers out here in the business. We all know who. Um, tend to gravitate towards the HGH and the steroids because they want to look a certain way on screen. And I just felt, you know what? And, and I had basically given up on the acting years back, but we'll get into that. But I just thought I would rather just be healthy, grow old, because you never know what's going on internally when you take that stuff. And I tend to see most people that stayed away from it, um, they aged better. Um, people like Schwarzenegger. Now, again, he was a bodybuilder and an actor, but you look at him now, uh, he still looks fantastic, but it's a little odd to what that HGH does. I think there's some side effects. I don't know enough about it to speak, but the people I've seen on it, it just seems to structurally change your uh, endocrinic body. Like your head gets bigger, your hands and knuckles, and I've read things. And I just thought, you know what, there's something about that. I don't want to put it in me. So I think I'm just going to stay, you know, just doing what I normally do, which is just eating or diet and whatever I end up looking like I look like so but yeah when I came here uh, being that big obviously it helped for the work that I got into doing uh, security but it was uh it it was huge I just I, the grocery bills were just ridiculous that, <laughs> the amount of food I was eating but uh, well, well, if you want us to put the picture up on the podcast notes on the website you know just yeah just that's let, fine let us know but I'm sure people <laughs> after, after explaining it I'm sure people would love to see the photograph as well yeah and again there's some 1980s vintage shorts that are being worn there. Of course, we've all <laughs> talked about the, uh, as I referenced it, the banana hammock that was so interesting in our Shenmue <laughs> Cop movie. But uh, yeah, those were the shorts that we wore back then. <laughs> but yeah, it's hilarious to look back on that. That's why I said it's just funny. But again, it helped me uh, to get into the executive protection field, and and um, you know, eventually led me to fly. But being that big, and being able to know um, how to handle people, you can't be a bully. And again, when I was in grade school, I was always picked on. I had the, the pants that were way too short, uh, you know, the goofy haircut, the, the buck teeth, the glasses. And I don't know if comedy came from that as a protection or I was picked on just because I was a goofy kid. But the bigger I got, it, obviously you insulate yourself and, and most people won't mess with you just because visually they think, oh, you know, this guy, obviously we don't want to piss him off. Mm -hmm. um, but uh and I actually had met a guy years later when I was bigger that had picked on me. I met him. I was in a convenience store and I said, Hey, you remember me? I'm mad. Yeah. Yeah. And he was kind of a little nervous. I go, yeah, it's funny. It's, I remember he used to pick on me all the time on the bus. I go, it's kind of funny now. I could probably kick the shit out of you if I wanted to, <laughs> but that's the ability when you're that big to not be that guy. And, and having the, the background and the training and, and, and fighting and stuff that I had learned, it's to not use that. You should never have to use that. Obviously, worked as a bouncer. And a lot of times, it's knowing how to speak to people. You obviously know they're intoxicated. It's not about pounding somebody's head in and beating the hell out of them. It's knowing how to just treat them with respect, and they basically would respect you. And, you know, you only use that if you have to. Yeah. And there's a, there's a ton of people out there that just get big on weights and just are bullies. And they usually eventually meet the guy that's always going to be bigger and he beats your ass. And then you kind of learn your lesson. But. 
it's, it's, it's about being humble. You actually have to be more humble and <clears throat> gravitate away from my typical response. When you're that big, you just, you just have to do it because it's, it's, it's something that it's, it's dangerous and obviously can end you up in, you know, bad situations, jail, prison, whatever, just because you lose your temper, you, you, you know, so there's, there's a lot that goes with that, but there are the bullies out there. And I just never wanted to be one of those guys. I was a, a, you know, friendly guy and always tried to make you feel comfortable when you were around. So. Oh yeah. It makes, like you say, it makes it, it makes it easier for them and it makes it easier for you too. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just an unspoken thing, especially if you're doing bodyguard work, you know, you can't, uh, obviously everybody thinks, so. you know, if I kick your ass, I get your job. And it's kind of like, well, no, but mm. you just have to be ready for the guys that are out there that are drinking, especially when we were working with Sly that, that want to test you. But, um, yeah. I just, I just think from me growing up where I grew up, and again, I didn't mention the city. It was Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. So it's the Pacific Northwest to the upper uh, left-hand corner of the United States, if you're not familiar. Mm. Um, and uh, But and everybody there, it's just a nice uh, – everybody gets along, and they're very polite. So I think my upbringing helped a lot as far as knowing how to deal and treat people. Yeah. You said an interesting phrase a few minutes ago, executive protection. So what was what was with the first steps – that you took to get into that? Did somebody introduce oh. you to a certain firm or something? <laughs> yeah, I had, a, when I left um, Oregon to go to LA, I had a friend that worked out with me in the gym by the name of Sunuai Lutu, a Samoan Hawaiian uh, great guy. And he had a friend that had a security company in Southern California in Los Angeles called Contemporary Security. I don't think it's around anymore, but his friend was Damon, I think Zumwalt. And he gave him a call and said, hey, my buddy's getting ready to move down there. You know, he's been a bouncer. He kind of knows he's a polite guy, but he's just huge and nice. And he's got some experience, in, you know, whatever you need as far as fighting and blah, blah, blah. If it has to go to that. Um, so that was my initial contact when I moved to um, L.A. And I went and met with a guy and their their security company basically dealt with like venues. You know, when you go to concerts, you see guys that have the event staff coats on or they're standing yeah, by yeah. the stage. They also handled um, convention center security where if like out here, they have a big show or like Comic-Con or E3, you know, it's something of a magnitude of a big show. Sometimes they want people in the booths where they have their exhibits to kind of protect and watch the product. So you would just stand there. And that was the first job uh, when I got here that I met with him. He sent me to the Anaheim Convention Center, which is near Disneyland. And I met the the main supervisor guy. He said, okay, follow me. And he brought me over and he put me in the far corner of this big warehouse convention center. He goes, okay, you just hang out here. And I'm like, and do what? And he's <laughs> like, you just stand here. And I'm like, really? So I quickly said, well, I'm going to go leave now because this isn't I'm mean, being an asshole, arrogant shithead again, a young 23-year-old. No, no, I'm not doing this. I'm out of here. And I left. And I basically called um, the owner of the company, I said, you know what? I appreciate, you know, the opportunity, but I'm really looking to do, um, something more in the, in the, uh, line of executive protection. And, and, and that basically is another fancy word for yes, bodyguard, or it's basically secret service training, or I think you guys have, what is your, um, similar to our secret service, uh, I forget the name, what you guys call your executive protection details, but, um, and the guy said, you know, the guy you need to talk to is a guy by the name of Benny Mayers. He works for a company called Pinkerton. And I think Pinkerton is worldwide, Pinkerton yeah. Security. Um, so 
I went and met with this guy. I was also working in a department store called Sears. Sears and Roebuck. It's a large chain here. I don't know. If, I don't think you guys have over there in Great Britain. No, um, no. And I worked. I worked in there. Um, it's like a, a Macy's or a Bloomingdale, something like that. That's over here. Um, and I worked in their loss prevention, which is you're basically in the store. And at that time in the 80s, they had cameras in the ceilings and they were the very first store to utilize those big bubbles. And each bubble had a camera in it. And there was probably 40 of them throughout the store. And we all sat in a room with 40 TV screens directly in front of us and then two large screens on the very bottom. And you just basically look up above and each camera would be trained on maybe the jewelry or the cosmetic or the tools. Uh, high theft areas, and you, it's like a video game. We actually would sit there and go, oh, "Watch that guy up there, okay? Bring him down on." And when you pull that small camera down <clears throat> to the two main cameras in front of you, it began recording, and it basically just is like, "All right, let's watch him." And then you'd slowly watch and start turning to the left and turning to the right and looking down the aisle, and you get excited. Up, oh, hey, here he goes, watch him, and then sure enough, he'd reach out, he'd grab a set of tools, and boom, under his jacket. And it's like, okay, that's the first thing we've seen. We saw him select the item. Then you have to watch and wait if he goes by open cash registers, and then which shows that he had no intent to pay, and then he exits the store. And you can't grab him or go after him until he exits, which shows the intent to steal. Yeah. So it was really a blast job that I had, but it was a part-time job, and it wasn't paying much. But I really – that was probably one of the funnest jobs I ever had because, like I said, it was like a video game. Um, and then, uh, so I did call the guy from Pinkerton security, <clears throat> Benny Mares, and, uh, he said, sure, absolutely. Come on down. I met with him and he said, um, basically what they did, they hired a lot of police officers because they were able to carry the uh, concealed weapon permits so they could have, you know, weaponry on them and they would do armed uh, security where your pay rate was obviously more. I had qualified with weapons to have an exposed firearm, but not a concealed weapon. Very hard to get in L.A. County unless you're a celebrity or there's a, a threat of, you know, somebody coming after you. Uh, it's just hard to get. Um, so I think the first job he sent me on, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that movie that came out in the 80s called Colors with yes, Sean yeah. Penn and, and Robert Duvall. All right. Well, here in L.A., they wanted armed security in the theaters because they were worried that the Crips and Bloods would start shooting each other in the theater. So they thought, we need to have some armed guards. Like, I'm going to take on, uh, you know, the L.A.'s most <laughs> finest crime syndicate with my little Star 45 PD. But uh, so I did that for a while with him. And then he also um, did executive protection details for the uh, royal families um, out of uh, Saudi Arabia. The king and queen of Abu Dhabi would travel to LA and they would want security details to be outside their hotel rooms or take them wherever they went in town traveling. <clears throat> so I did that for a while. And then come to find out later that he actually had the contracts for Sylvester Stallone's residences and his offices. So um, basically through talking with him, I was trying, I was basically on a waiting list because at that time Sly basically was only hiring uh, police officers that could carry weapons. Yeah. <clears throat> and as we go into um, more of how I met Sly's bodyguards, I guess, I don't know if it's time to go into that or how, but that's... Yeah, sure. Basic, well, the, 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 the correlation, the, the, the luckiness that I had. When I moved to L.A., I started working out at the world-famous Gold's Gym in Venice, California, where Arnold and all the bodybuilders came back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. 
And then I had read Sly's autobiography, or he had a book out, still only with him on the cover in a white tank, arms crossed. And it mentioned in the book that he trained at a gym in Santa Monica, California, called Santa Monica Bodybuilding Center. So I went looking for that gym, obviously because, hey, this is where my childhood idol works out. Maybe I can <laughs> see him, and he's going to say, hey, come on board. Let's do Rocky Seven. you know, <laughs> stupid kid. But um, So I found a gym, and when I went to the gym, Sly was off filming Rambo 3 with the owner of the gym, George Pipasic. And um, I think you can actually go to YouTube and Google Santa Monica Bodybuilding Center, and it'll pull up. You'll see the equipment. George hand-built every single piece of equipment in that gym. Um, it's an amazing, amazing engineering feats that he accomplished when he moved or actually escaped from Czechoslovakia back when it was two states or two different countries. Uh, he came to LA and he actually worked during the day for 12 hours and then at night would build bodybuilding equipment. He trained with Arnold and Franco Colombo and all them. And I think, uh, George's background was engineering and bodybuilding. So he knew how to combine and create machinery. Um, with certain designs, things you've never seen. You never patented any of this, but it's just amazing to see the equipment that would actually adjust for someone who's, say, four foot nine, could sit on this piece of machinery. He would adjust it to fit you, or if I got on it at six foot three, you could adjust it to fit me, which is unheard of because most machinery is made just generic, and you get on it, and you fit or you don't fit. Mm-hmm. And the only people that that would be interesting to is bodybuilders because it's such a meticulous when you're a bodybuilder, which I never was, I just weight trained, but bodybuilders, when you're competing to be number one or number two in the world, the slightest difference in definition or cut or whatever can make the difference of who wins and who doesn't. And George's equipment with the way you could adjust it would give you that advantage because no one else could have that angle or that degree of, uh, you know, whatever adjustment was made. So for me, I just thought that was uh, amazing to see that. And then he kept a very meticulous gym, always clean. When you're done with the weight, you put it back. You don't bang the weights back. Don't slam the weights. And, you know. <laughs> so here I come in to the gym. They're off filming. His wife was there. I joined the gym. It was like $600. Worked out there for a couple, two or three weeks. Then the rumor was they were on their way back. So in that gym, to give you an idea, it was uh, it was. Every wall had Sly's posters from all of his movies. It was basically Sly's gym. Um, George had opened the gym and slowly had clients coming. I think Franco Colombo brought Sly to that gym to train him privately so that he'd be away from the general public during, I think it was Rocky two or three, wherever Sly got injured. I think uh, Franco had had him just, I think Sly talked about an injury to his chest. He had pulled the muscle because Franco kept pushing and pushing him and then something snapped. So I think um, Sly thought, you know what, I, maybe I need to find a new trainer. And he asked George, hey, would you mind training me? So, and George was honored, obviously. And then, like I said, it became a shrine there. And there was a lot of celebrities that that trained at that gym when I was there. Tom Cruise was there, um, Sally Field, Tom Hanks, his wife, Rita Wilson, big wig producers, uh, Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer, who produced Flashdance and Top Gun. So I don't know if it was because of Sly that became a networking gym, but I happened to just stumble in there, obviously not realizing, you know, the green kids are from Oregon, not knowing how powerful this gym was, besides the fact that this is where, you know, my idol, Sylvester Stallone, works out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started training there. Like I said, George came back two weeks early before Sly, and he had a talk with me. Matt, let me explain. 
if you look around the gym, no one is 270 pounds. Everyone here, this is Hollywood, and Hollywood's about the abs and the butt. So everybody was, you know, leaned out, and he said, no one's going to be able to give you a spot. You know, when you're benching 420, hopefully you don't kill yourself, but we can't. So I understood. He was basically telling me, you know, just be careful. This isn't Gold's Gym. Yeah. And he basically, I, I think, in my opinion, um, allowed me to stay. Because he could tell, if he didn't like you, you were gone. You, you didn't have to stay there. So um, I continued working out there. Then all of a sudden, the rumor came up. Guess who's coming back to town? Sly's on his way back from Israel. He'll be here tomorrow. So all of a sudden, I'm pumped up. Oh, my God, I'm going to finally meet the guy. I came into the gym the next day. And uh, I'm working out, and you start to hear the rumble outside of the Harleys coming. Because Sly's production office was a couple blocks away, and he would call ahead and let George know he was on his way in for his training session. So here's the rumble of the Harleys, because it would be Sly and his bodyguards pulling up. And then uh, in walked Sly into the gym in his Gianni Versace uh, sunglasses, which are the ones that you see in my movie Samurai Cop when I'm at the church. Yes. Uh, waiting for Jennifer outside. Those are the same glasses that, uh, <laughs> oh, that you were. I mean, that's what that's what I'm saying. I became the dumb kid. Hey, I'm going to get a pair of those. That's why I was probably looking at you. You would be a douchebag. You look just like me. What's right? You know. But it was it was just funny to have. But anyway, he came walking into the gym in his black sweatpants and his white, you know, high top boxing boots. And at, at that time, I don't know if you remember, there were uh, sweatshirts that were popular during that time called Aka Joe. Uh, sweatshirts and he had that on blue cut off sleeves and he just walked into that gym and you just could feel his presence his aura and for me what a moment you know it's like here he is here's the guy obviously he's shorter than I thought but that had nothing to do with the amount of uh, grandeur that he just walked through that gym he said hello to everybody you know that he had known because they'd been training there and then he like a dog came right by me and pissed right in front of me he was marking his territory like this is my gym big boy and uh you know not directly like that he looked at me gave me a little nod and then continued on and did his training session but what a moment for me to be there and then to get back now to how with the other guy uh, how i got hooked up um one of sly's main bodyguards and i have to kind of preface this because a lot of people have uh, had their again, I don't use the term when I think of Sly's bodyguards. I didn't consider myself one of them, and I'll explain. Yeah. <clears throat> I just always knew I was on his executive protection detail. And what Sly had at that time, um, his very first bodyguard was a, guy, a gentleman by the name of Tony Manafo. And Sly met him, or he was actually required to hire a bodyguard because right after Rocky II, when Sly was really becoming a huge celebrity. He would go out to venues like Studio 54 in New York, and I, these stories I'm telling you are from what the bodyguards had told me um, that had been with him longer. He would go into the club, and you're always going to have people that are admiring, hey, Rocky, how you doing? Got to meet you. And then you had the jerks that would come up, hey, so tall, you're a little shrimp, I could kick your ass, you ain't a boxer. Mm-hmm. And fly, fly. And and he would go off and he'd start punching the shit out of guys and fighting, <laughs> you know. And the studios were like, whoa, whoa, listen, you can't be doing that anymore. You are a commodity. We can't have you with broken, you know, nose or black eye. Not that anybody would do that. But they said, you're going to have to hire security. So Tony Manafo, either Sly picked or the studio provided for him. He was his very first bodyguard. Then another guy came along by the name of Tony Moffatone. Apparently only Sly was hiring Tony at the time. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they worked with him primarily for a, quite a long time. Then the next bodyguard hired 
was Gary Compton. Now, Gary Compton happened to be the nephew of Sanuai Lutu, the, my friend in Oregon, that had given me my first uh, security job. So in the gym, Sly's working out. These guys, we would have chit-chat back and forth. Um, Gary and I would talk. The other bodyguard was a gentleman by the name of Mike DeLuca, who was a gold gloves boxer. Fantastic guy. He actually started off, I believe, working in Sly's house first at the Malfi Drive in uh, the Pacific Palisades, and then Sly promoted him to to be an all-around, come-with-me-wherever-I'm-at kind of bodyguard. Yeah. And the third primary bodyguard while I was there was a guy by the name of Boyle Gorick, who was the Russian in Rambo 2 that tortures Sly, if you remember, the crew-cut guy, oh, the big, giant, yeah. scary and and then Sly finally battles him and throws him out of the helicopter. Boyo um, was an actor, but Sly kept him on after that because Boyo is an incredible human being. He was always an actor, but he had a notorious reputation in Europe as probably one of the baddest street fighters you ever could come across. Uh, he was uh, Yugoslavian. He was known to <clears throat> work as the bodyguard for the Godfathers and some of the mafias over there. I mean, he was just a all around, just a tough, tough guy, but also a sweetheart. And uh, he, we had actually sat and talked about the many, many prisons he had been in and out of in his career over there. He worked as a pickpocket for a while. He worked both sides of the, the law, you know, good guy, bad guy. But then he decided, <laughs> you know what, I'm going to give all this up. I'm going to move to, to America and I'm going to be a, a movie actor. And he did. And he was in several movies. If you Google, Boyle Gork. He was with River Phoenix and Little Nikita. He did Van Damme's Lionheart. I mean, there's a lot of movies that he was in. In my opinion, he was the, the most underused character actor ever. I mean, Sly put him in movies here and there. He was in Lock Up, a couple scenes. He's the guy throwing snow in one of the inmates' face. Mm-hmm. Just a great, great guy. Gentle giant, but also just very, very dangerous. So, in my personal opinion, those were Sly's three main bodyguards. Now, <clears throat> after talking with uh, Gary and then he found out I knew this guy Benny Mares over at Pinkerton he said you know we have Benny we have the contract we're looking to bring in some new talent because the guys were hiring these police officers they just they, they flake out or they get stuck on double shifts and Sly's looking to bring in a different type of security and then, you know I understand that you've got a background and you know how to take care of yourself and you know weapons training and so on and so forth so through that connection, again, coincidentally, that's how I started um, with Sly. They hired me on to uh, to work with Sly. And and Sly, like I said, had 24-hour shifts, uh, security around the clock. 7 to 3 was a shift, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., 3 p.m. to 11, and 11 to 7. I was on the 3 p.m. to 11 shift. So when I preface this, like I said, I would start my shift at 3 o'clock. Uh, basically, yes, I would either go to the Beverly Hills home that Sly had up in Benedict Canyon, or he had a beach house in Malibu. So depending on when I got a call from the bodyguards during the day, hey, come and meet us over on Warner Brothers. We're still shooting Tango and Cash. Sly's going to be down here for two more hours. I would drive to the set. Now, when those guys that I met up with them, they'd say, okay, you know, we're leaving. Sly's maybe going to go to dinner. Otherwise, he's going to the house in Beverly Hills. So they would leave, and then I would then take over. So in my opinion, anytime I'm in Sly's proximity, I'm worried and concerned for his safety and his well-being. I'm there to protect his life. So, yeah. yes, in that capacity, I am a bodyguard. But I didn't consider myself one of the primary bodyguards, which are the guys that worked, like I said, the morning shift. So yeah. um, 
that's basically how I stayed in that position for a while and, and did that for, I don't know how long it was, like two years. You must have got in some pretty scary situations, though, surely, during that time. No, not really. With Sly, a lot of it was you're, you're basically there as a buffer. Um, Sly's very personable, loves to talk to people. But again, he also has a schedule that he's got to stick to. If he's on a publicity tour, you can't have him stop to sign autographs because it could turn into 500 autographs, and now you're five hours behind schedule. So you have to be the bad guy. You And Sly understood that. We No, you guys, sorry, you can't sign right now. Oh, come on, man. He said it was cool. And it's like, yeah, I know, but we got to get him out of here. So it's a it's a it's a weird position to be in. Yes, we would be out at clubs, and there were there were situations with some of the other guys where guys would sit and taunt you because they know they would love for you a to hit them so they could sue the hell out of Sly. So that's <laughs> another thing you have to take into consideration when Sly's looking for personal protection. You can't be a hothead. You can't be getting in fights because it's going to cost them a penny. You know, that's what, like I said, people, and this is before paparazzi became what they are today. You can oh, only imagine yeah. how how that could have been. But, you know, we would be patient, and some of the guys would sit there and listen to the guy while Sly was having dinner. We'd be sitting at the, the, the nearby bar, and people would be, hey, tough guy, I'll kick you around. And you just sit there, you take it, you take it. But eventually the guy had to go to the bathroom. And when he did that, then one of us would be paying the visit. Out of sight, out of mind, nobody knew. And they would... <laughs> So I'm saying there were ways to give little paybacks, but most of the time <laughs> you got to watch your uh, your P's and Q's. And, and there was a time when uh, Fly, like I said, lived in Venice or uh, Malibu on a road called Broad Beach Road. And there was another celebrity who lived down the way, uh, Valerie Bertinelli and um, her husband at the time. I can't remember what his name uh, the, 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 uh, He's Wolfgang Parker, not Wolfgang. Who's the son that plays guitar for... Uh, whoever Valerie Bertinelli's first husband was. Um, but anyway, he was a couple of doors down from Sly. Sly came tearing down the the road, and apparently um, the guy didn't like that he did that and yelled something to Sly, and Sly pulled over and got out. Now they're having this argument. You know, I went to slow down because I had a turbo Porsche, and he was just being like anybody else, having fun on a little private road. Hmm. Well, Voyo, our Russian friend, uh, pulls up behind Sly in the chase car in IROC Z and sees Sly and this guy face to face. Voyo jumps out and just goes after this guy. And he's in his face, grabbing him. Sly literally has to jump on Voyo's back and starts choking him, trying to pull him <laughs> off because he knows, I can't be having you do this. I'm going to get sued. And But I mean, this is the kind of stuff that would go on, but nothing really critical where you had. Uh, anybody really coming at him to attack him, to harm him. It was more or less get him through a crowd. And again, Sly, similar to like Elvis was with his bodyguard, it's nice to have your guys around because it allows you a buffer. You feel comfortable. You have somebody to play off of. You're not just in front of strangers. Sly loves to talk to people. He's the first guy that will sit there and chat with you forever. But mm. it's nice to have somebody else there along, you know, with you that can kind of be that buffer and, and uh, like I said, get you through a crowd or keep your day going on if you, if you don't have time to sit there and, and talk to fans, so. Oh, yeah. So what happened with that then? How did how did you progress then from being with Sly? What happened to you? Uh, stayed, I stayed with Sly for about, I think it was like two years. I came on at Rocky or to Rambo 3 and I stayed mm-hmm. through... Um, Stopper, my mom will shoot. Classic. Uh, lock up, <laughs> tango and cash. Um, oh yeah, his, his glasses wearing 
a phase. That was yeah. I mean, I remember the day when he cut his hair because he had his hair long for Rambo three. You know, once they knew all that was done and in the can, then he he did cut his hair and then it was right into his, uh, you know, GQ preppy look with the short hair and the glasses and that mm. was Tango and Cash and Lockup and all that. <laughs> and um, I think I left. And what had happened, there had been some problems with some of the bodyguards. Mike DeLuca had gotten into a uh, uh, a little altercation. I don't know where it was or it was on the set of Lockup or something. They actually filmed that in Rawway State Prison, an actual prison on the yard with inmates. And it was something where the warden said, look, well, I'm not telling you right now. We can't guarantee your safety. You go out there in that yard if one of them wants to grab you guys and take you hostage, it's going to happen. So that was a kind of a hairy situation for the guys. Um, yeah. But um, something happened on set and uh, Mike was uh, asked to step back or just go back and work at the houses for a while, not be on slide, you know, direct uh, bodyguard detail. And I, and I want to quickly throw a shout out. Mike was, uh, uh, there's kind of uh, uh, rumors around what happened, but he was um, shot by some, police officers uh, here in Los Angeles and uh, actually Ventura County, Port Wainini police officers that uh, shot him at four in the morning. There's a lot of things that went uh, rumors that he was, for some reason, they, they said there was a weapon. There wasn't. Mike was the most gentle stand-up guy you could ever meet. There's a lot of controversy that surrounded that. Allegedly, it just seems like some police officers were a little trigger-happy. Allegedly, I'll protect myself legally. Um, but I just, he was a great guy and he's very well missed by a lot of people here. And, uh, but, uh, Mike eventually left and then Voyo, uh, same thing. Uh, if you kind of rub fly the wrong way and he just didn't want you around and he left and Gary had asked me to step up to take their positions. And, and number one, I don't ever think I could fill the shoes of either of those guys. They were legends at what they did there. Yeah. And me as an actor, I kind of wanted to have my days free to audition and do and pursue my own dreams. It was a blast to work for Sly. And I told him this later after I left him, I really wanted to see if I could achieve just one tenth of the amount of success that he had. Because again, remember at that time when I worked for him, he was king of the hill. He was top of the world. I mean, he was one of the biggest movie stars you know, in the world. And then obviously the careers, there's ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys. He had begun, you know, heading, uh, not to the same level where he was. Oh yeah. Definitely. So when, when Gary asked me to take that job and I said, no, I think I kind of want to just pursue my acting. He said, well, you know, when I hired you, you didn't tell me you were an actor. And I said, Gary, if I would have told you at that time that I was an actor, do you really think you would have hired me? No. <laughs> so, I mean, I took it as, and for me as an actor, it couldn't have been a, a better place to learn the business than being at that level with the producers and directors and, and you know, Tony Scott and Chuck and Larry Gordon, all these big time producers to really be on a set and to watch Sly work. Um, not from a thespian point of view, obviously his acting technique is unique, mm -hmm. but to be and see how a really top notch film uh, runs uh, it was an amazing apprenticeship, I would say, or experience to go through. Oh, so for yeah. me, that was in and of itself a gift that I think Sly gave to me, other than the fact of me being able to talk to him one-on-one -on -one and, and, and spending time with him and, and listen to him and his philosophies about life and acting and everything. Um, it, w it was just amazing. And, and, and I had lost a considerable amount of weight when Sly had asked uh, some of the bodyguards, like I said, we were very huge and he wanted us to kind of blend in a little more and he asked us to drop weight. So I, I lost 
I think, I don't know, for my wedding, I got married in June of 88. I lost uh, 30 pounds in a month. Came down to 240, thought I was cut up. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm actually on my bikini, in my bikini on my honeymoon. My wife and I look at the videos going, look, I even thought I was so uh, fantastically in shape that I could sport this in Hawaii. Um, <laughs> but then I just kept losing and losing. And then I basically took my uh, direction from looking at Sly being so lean. And you just saw his physique at that time was just unbelievably ripped. And I basically retrain myself to get as cut and as lean as possible. Hmm. And unfortunately, the more weight that I lost, the more the resemblance uh, between us came out. And I had my hair long and, and it was starting to grow it out. And we would actually be in situations where um, a delivery guy came to the house because Sly's brother Frank had been on a safari and killed a hyena and a lion. He had him stuffed and the guy was delivering to Sly as a gift. So the guy's unloading the truck and I'm out there with him. And here comes Sly out having a cup of coffee. And the guy says to me, oh, Mr. Stallone, where do you want me to place these? And I'm like, oh, shit. I go, no, this, this is Sly over here. And he looks at me like, yeah, what do I do? I said, well, it's Sly, it's not like I'm a troll. I mean, it's a compliment, I assume, but you're so offended. Because they thought he was taller or they thought for whatever reason. And again, I'm not trying to just keep throwing that out there. But it, it, it was what it was. There was a resemblance. And that I could tell made him uncomfortable. And then just being out in public, a lot of times people would, uh, same thing, the mistake would happen. I thought, you know what, I got to back out of this because I don't want to ruin what relationship we do have. And so when Gary asked me to take the position and I refused, then we kind of got into it. And I just said, you know what, I think I'll just move on, Gary. I appreciate everything. And then I left. Sly was on a vacation in Hawaii at the time. Then he came back and I saw him in the gym and he said, man, you know, what what, what happened? What, uh, how come you're leaving? And I said, you know, Sly, I think... I, like I said, I appreciate everything that you've ever shown me or, or exposed me to. It's been an honor to work for you, but I just really want to pursue stand-up comedy and acting, and, and I hope you can understand. He's like, no, absolutely, you know, how Sly is, you know, go get it. And people always said, how come he never gave you a shot or he didn't? And Sly, he's not, it's not that he's not a giving guy, but it would be very awkward for me to get a break from Sly because then it would be, oh, hey, this is Sly's bodyguard and forever. I would be attached yeah. to him. And I think he knew yeah. you got to do it on your own. And obviously if you ever hit any semblance of success, I obviously would love to help her. He'd be there for me. I understood that, mm-hmm. but I got it. And, 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 um, and the competition and the ego, here's a younger kid. And, you know, you know, so I, I get it. And it was a cordial departing and we stayed uh, in contact, you know, for the years after, cause I actually trained with his same coach, George one-on-one and as Sly did throughout the years after that. So then, yeah, basically just left him and then went on doing executive protection for some other celebrities, like I said, Arnold and some other guys, and then started going out on auditions and, and, and doing, looking for acting work. Yeah. So how did the, uh, how did the acting work finding go? Was it, it must've been tough as they always have to <laughs> acting gigs. Well, yeah. And again, it was that same, uh, cloud following me because I would go out on auditions for the same producers, Joel Silver at the time or any hit production or Chuck and Larry Gordon, like I said, and I go, go in and be auditioning and they go, Hey, it's Matt. Oh, that's right. You're Sly's bodyguard. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, I used to do that. But what I really, you know, I, this is what I wanted to do. That was my day job or so to speak, or that's how I paid my bills, but I'm really an actor. And it was very hard for people to, to get that, um, that was one thing. Another thing was my height being six foot three. Um, 
and you can never make Hollywood happy. You know, you're too tall, you're too short, you're too tan, you're too <laughs> white, you're too big, you're not big. You know, so I got it. Um, and what happened when I lost so much weight, I took myself out of that character actor mode where, you know, if I would have been 270, and then, you know, you're a character, you're not a leading man. But when you get lean and ripped up at 190, 195, you're a leading man now. And unfortunately, it was tough for me being, like I said, so tall. Um, you know, Tom Cruise, a lot of these famous, they're not very <laughs> tall. And I'm not disparaging any of them. It's just the reality of <clears throat> this business and what it is. Um, so I got that and then, ah, geez, I mean, there's just a ton of, it's just a tough, tough business to get into. It's a clicky business. It's, it's, uh, a, a real who, you know, kind of business. And I've yeah. always made the jokes in my standup, you know, being six foot three Christian heterosexual man, uh, it was going to be hard for me to find work in this town unless I was willing to chop my legs off, slap a, slap a yarmulke on my head and start, you know, performing fellatio. Now, I say that not to disparage against any of those groups, but there is and a large Jewish a strong and um, community. And there's nepotism. There are a lot of um, Jewish people. And again, I'm treading lightly here because I'm not trying to go Mel Gibson. But it, it, and there's been a lot of Jewish comedians that make these jokes, Kirby Enthusiasm. Uh, they all make reference. I mean, their their powerful positions are held by um, some people in the Jewish community. Now, yes, there's African-American people that hold positions. There are, you know, in my case, Greeks. Um, and, and there is a large community uh, and a homosexual community in Hollywood where you have a lot of the assistants and um, just there's there's just it's a networking. Uh, and those tribes are very, very prevalent in Hollywood. So unless you're clicking in those groups, and but what I mean by that, meaning you can get an introduction because you know this guy or he knows you and, oh, I can get you in to see him because I'm his assistant or, oh, I go to that synagogue. Oh, you know what? I know Mr. So-and-so. I can get you in to see. And, uh, and what I mean is you don't get the part, but you have that door open for you. It's nepotism. Like in the business I'm in now, if, if I know somebody and you're a friend of a friend, I'm going to hire you because this guy said, hey, bring him in. If you yeah. don't know anybody, it's really tough to get in there and say, hey, take a look at me. I can do this. Or So <clears throat> I basically um, just tried to work every angle and figure out, you know, how can I get in? And then you just go on audition after audition, and it becomes like a, a scratch or lottery ticket. You just you just keep scratching and you keep losing, but you're wasting time and you're driving to auditions. And you're wasting gas and this and that. you got to make a living. So you tend to gravitate towards, uh-oh, i got to go pay the bills. And off you go back to do, you know, the security work and whatever. So it was, it was tough for me. I did do that very first movie, which I think you guys have seen called American Revenge. I think you've seen clips of it. Yeah, um, I've only seen clips of it. That's all. I don't know about you, Tom, if I, you've seen I, it anymore. No, no. Just... I actually, yeah, I don't know if it ever came out. I don't know if it was released. I actually recently gave um, Greg Hatanaka a VHS copy that I had. But there was one that was on a PAL system, which I guess is your. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, um, it's, yeah. So I had one tape that was PAL system that was given to me by the producer of the film from Sweden, Odox Investments, I think, is who owned it. And they just never released it. And so I asked Greg, if you can get this or I can look at it, I'd love to see. Because I did have a VHS copy, too. But <clears throat> I shot that movie in November of 1989, like just right after I left working with Sly. So that was fun. But again, it was a low budget. Uh, I played a bad guy, Angelo, whatever the heck goes, that drug dealer. It was just... Uh, 
a quick little go shoot it for three weeks. And it, it was funny because the day, that, uh, the actual time that I went and filmed that, um, <clears throat> which was when a, I think the Mirage Hotel had just opened and it was one of the very first of the big, big casino, you know, resorts. And I actually went there to film the movie and actually was there hired to work as a bodyguard for Louis Gossett Jr. and take him to the uh, Leonard Duran three fight. Uh, so I actually did both when I was there. And what happened when I was there on that night, I took him down to his seat, Louis Gossett, and then I was walking back up from ringside. And then up at the top of the ramp was Sylvester uh, Sly and Chevy Chase. And they had come there to go to the fight, too, coincidentally. Yeah. So I asked Sly, Sly, are you here alone? Gary, anybody here? No, no, we're all by ourselves. I said, well, let me walk you down ringside. I'll take you down to your seat. And that's the photo that I sent you of Sly and I together. That was taken that night as we walked down to the uh, ring. I don't know if oh, you saw that great. one, if Tina yeah. showed you. So again, yeah, it's just yeah. this weird, weird, crazy coincidences of how things <laughs> just roll out in, in, in my life. And it was actually as we were walking down to the ringside, paparazzi's taking pictures and they're yelling, Hey, Sly, to me, again, hey, Sly, can we get it? And they're thinking Sly is Frank, so they're calling him Frank. And I'm like, great, this is the exact same nightmare that I didn't want to ever occur again. <laughs> Happening again with Sly, this is putting a nail in my coffin of him never, ever trying to get me involved in Hollywood because this is what he's going to have to deal with, the Stallone clone. Um, but it was just funny to be able to you know, take him down and you know, be there with him again after just such recent parting. Um, and then I think <clears throat> I went, um, I think I did some auditions a little bit more. And then I met um, Amir. I think it was June of 1990 is when I, when I met up with Amir. And then that, that began, Yeah. which I don't know if we're getting into that now, but that's how. And I actually came about meeting Amir through Voyo because he had done <clears throat> a small bit part in one of uh, Amir's films. And I'm not sure which one it was. I know Amir did four of them. And I have yet to see Voyo in any footage, but he said, you know, Matt, you should go see this guy, Amir. He does movies. And if you want to be an actor, you need to get out there and get some footage, some tape for your reel so that you can, you know, parlay that into more and more work. Yeah. So ironically, it was funny that Voyo was the one that introduced me uh, to Amir mm -hmm. for uh, Samurai Cop. Ah. Well, we'll, we'll, do, we'll jump now because I mentioned at the start all the Samurai Cop talk we're going to do in part two of this interview. So let's let's, let's jump to... You've just finished filming. Just finished filming Samurai Cop. What happens then? I mean, where? When was the first time you saw the film? Let's let's ask that to start with. We actually never never saw the film. I don't think it was ever released. I think I, I kept badgering Amir, saying, "Hey, look, I need to get some footage," and I think he did eventually get me a uh, a VHS copy with a time code on it. Okay, uh, for me to watch. So I had that. I think Mark Frazier had mentioned in an interview that he thought that I went and stole it from Amir's <laughs> office and then called him over to my house to watch it. I said, wait a minute, you're putting me in that criminal activity a little too soon. I did go to the dark side, but not on that that film. But uh, but yeah, so I, I um, that's when I got a hold of it and finally from Amir and then I had uh, footage of it. And then I basically just really tried to find whatever I could find out of that fantastic beautiful mess um something that i could use as an actor that had me not speaking because a lot of as we talked about the dialogue in the film was so ridiculous but um uh and then I, i'm trying to think because that's around 91 yeah and i think i just continued going out doing security work and then 
that's when I headed into that dark period of my life uh, uh, during, I think it was 91. And I don't know if we want to go into that. It's not a problem with me, but it's obviously something that is my past that took me to the other side of our society. Yeah, I mean, if, if you don't mind talking about it, Matt, it's entirely up to you. No, it's not. And it's nothing that, uh, and again, I, it, it's more or less to give uh, people more of a broad scope of things that I've experienced. Yeah. But, um, and, and again, um, I was, I'm going to try and go through this pretty quickly. <laughs> we'll see. I was hired by a friend to put together an executive protection detail for a local televangelist. And I believe he went worldwide. His name was Dr. Gene Scott. He was a theologist that taught uh, Bible stories or whatever, just the history of uh, the Bible. Yeah. And he had purchased a, the old United Artists Theater in downtown L.A., located on Olympic and I think Broadway. And he made that his cathedral. And in that cathedral, he had very, very old and uh, expensive Bibles, different versions of King James, so on and so forth. And his crown jewel in that um, uh, theater in the lobby. Imagine it's a movie theater, the grand kind with the staircases, and then you go into the balcony, mm -hmm. you know, the actual theater. It's a beautiful yeah. theater downtown LA. The nostalgia is, you know, amazing. But anyway, that's where he would hold his Sunday sermons um, that were broadcast. But in the foyer, he had a painting that was called uh, Sacrifice of Abraham. And it was rumored to be uh, started, I believe, by Rembrandt, but finished by a student, something to that nature. Um, can't be real clear on exactly, but that's basically what it was. It was a very expensive painting that he purchased through donations from his uh, parish. People had, And it was in the millions of dollars that he had spent on it. So he needed security there because he did, again, have priceless things there. So I put together a detailed team of probably 12 guys. They either worked with me with Stallone or I had known that were off-duty police officers or friends knew them and they referred them to me. So And we worked there probably, I don't know, three, four, five, six months and um, always on the weekends and we protected and helped them out. Uh, I... I don't know what happened, but the Dr. Gene Scott said, you know what? I don't need all these guys. They cost too much. I'm going to fire them all. I'm just going to hire a couple of my janitor guys to be the guards here at the place. <laughs> so here's where Matt and his youthful idiocy and stupidity and ego took it personal and thought, really, you're going to fire all of us because we cost too much, even though you have priceless you know, things here in your building. Yeah. I'm going to teach this guy a lesson. I'm going to show him how great his new security is compared to what it was. And I'm going to take his crown jewel. So Matt, in his mind, proceeded to create the most elaborate art theft that is ever. <laughs> and I was told this by the police officers that I met <laughs> in the future here, <laughs> that it was probably the most elaborate art theft that had ever taken place in Los Angeles. <laughs> And what made it ironic was that it was done by two idiotic, one actor and one stuntman <laughs> that pulled this off. Um, but anyway, so without going too much into it, because it's probably its own little HBO short movie, <laughs> the actual robbery itself. Because And, and again, I want to put you in my head, uh, again, a narcissistic, vain kid, maybe bored. I don't know. It, to me, it was almost like I was doing a movie. Yeah. I had so much planning that went into, again, just as you know, as an executive protection specialist, how to protect 
an environment or, uh, uh, you know, know the weak points of whatever, you can also turn that around and use it negatively and know, oh, here's a, here's a breach in security. If I was so-and-so bad guy, this is how I would get it. And yeah. normally I would protect that. Now I'm actually using that. And um, so anyway, we pulled off this robbery. The robbery went down. And again, I have to use that word because it was an armed robbery. And I, I don't want you to think for a moment that I take that lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll explain later um, why I feel that way. But it was um, the night I planned it out. It was the dark of the moon. And it just so happened to be uh, November 7th, 1991, the day that Magic Johnson had announced to the world that he was HIV positive. So that was the story on the news. That was the big deal of the day. Um, and I had planned this robbery to take place at uh, 6 p.m. when everybody was getting out of work because this theater was located downtown L.A. in the garment district. And the logistics of the building and how we entered that building, there were a lot of visual opportunities for those people to see us. So I timed it where I thought their shifts would be changing and there wouldn't be that many people that would see us entering the building. Again, I had disguises with, uh, you know, again, I could go into that, but I won't. Anyway, uh, we uh, end up uh, doing the robbery. Um, Again, that's in and of itself another hour I could go into that. Uh, Two gentlemen were um, tied up, um, moved to a certain position. The painting was removed from the wall. Uh, We exited the building. Probably the whole thing went down in exactly a half an hour. We are in and out, gone. Um, So now all of a sudden I have that uh, and I'm like, oh, great. I got it. It was on the news. It was announced, this big robbery. And what I didn't realize was that this guy Dr. Gene Scott had very, very high political contacts in the city of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. whether it be because of political contributions, whatever. But they basically assigned the two top homicide detectives in the LAPD on this case solely to find this painting. Whoa. Again, I don't know this until after the fact. I just saw it announced on the news. I saw an article in the paper. I watched his show and saw him make reference to these bastards that came and stole blah 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 and i'm in my mind going yeah it's me but again it's a i'm trying to give you the the state of mind that i was in Mm -hmm. either like i said it was from boredom whatever it was not uh i I guess i have to get into i finally realized um the two gentlemen that i come busting through the door and i'm pointing a weapon at them the gun was unloaded doesn't matter. They're looking at a barrel of a gun pointing at them in their eyes. Yeah. They think they're going to die. Mm-hmm. That's the realization that finally hit me. I have traumatized probably these guys for life. They're never going to forget it. I, I found out later that they quickly escaped. I mean, they untied themselves immediately after we left. So, again, I was always wondering, did they suffer? Were they, you know, because I am a human being that was just so goddamn blindsided by this ego revenge and let me show this motherfucker how great I, you know, not realizing you are committing an armed robbery and you are scaring the living shit out of two innocent people that are just trying to make a living. Um, so anyway, we had the painting, uh, probably for about three months and then it was like, okay, now how do we get it back or how are we going to give it back? Because there never really was a, uh, the object wasn't to get it and sell it. Because if you know anything about artwork, unless you have the provenance, 
to the painting, which is like a title to a car that shows who owned it and through the centuries or where it went and where it came from, it's worthless. Yeah. Um, unless on the black market, sure, somebody probably would want it and put it in their house, but if they ever got caught with it, they'd have to return it, blah, blah, blah. But um, so what happened was while we were trying to determine how we can return this painting, um, of course, yeah, the, the partner that I was with was thinking, well, maybe we should sell it. Maybe it's not, ah, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to bring that negative karma. Let's just figure out a way. Apparently, he had an argument with his girlfriend, uh, and this is the story that was told to me. She then went to the cops and said, hey, you want to know something? My boyfriend's got this painting that you're all looking for. And sure enough, the next day, the SWAT team surrounded his house, got him and the painting. Uh, I called him, couldn't get a hold of him, and I kind of put two and two together. Uh-oh, I bet something happened. I called the L.A. County Jail, gave his name, and they said, yes, he was booked earlier today for uh, armed robbery. So I thought, oh, shit, he exists. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to be coming after me, time for me to, you know. So I found an attorney and, you know, called my parents, which was an embarrassing thing to explain what had happened, and I'm going to need X amount of money to obviously hire this attorney and try to get myself out of this colossal uh, mistake that i gotten into. But anyway. Um, it rolled out, and uh, we, I surrendered to custody, went into custody. <clears throat> the judge ordered both of us to go to uh, Wasco State Prison, where they do what they consider a 90-day op. They put you in the environment of prison. They have you talk with a psychiatrist, a psychologist. They observe you in that atmosphere to see if you are a criminal and if you are going to be a threat to society. It's an observation period. 90 days, go up there, be observed and then come back and the judge will make his decision on your sentence. Now, we were looking at 10 years, five years for the gun. And again, I could have walked in with my finger under my shirt mm-hmm. simulating a gun. It's still considered a gun, even though it's your finger. So I didn't know this, of course, at the time. Yeah. The robbery itself is five years. So I'm looking at 10 years in prison for this ridiculous stunt that I pulled uh, that has put my wife family, immediate friends, everybody just in like shock. And, it, you know, it, you just really, your actions, that's where I learned to affect so many people. But anyway, um, so we went off to the prison. The problem is when you get there, we're in prison now. Yeah. When you're in prison, you have, <laughs> uh, it's a whole nother world. There's a certain demeanor that's needed there. I can't go there and be Mr. Schoolboy because I got to get a good report. So when it goes back to the judge, they say, oh yeah, he's fine. He's you know, he's not a bad guy. He cried every day and he <laughs> hid in his bunk and he was in his cell. Oh, that's perfect. Then we know this is a one-time thing. Let's let him go. Yeah. You can't do that. I'm there. It's survival mode. It's animalistic. It's, uh, and I'm not saying that I ran into any problems like that, but you have to understand if somebody comes up to me and decides to test me or, uh, you know, whatever, I have to do what I have to do. And that's going to be reported. Oh, yep. He was involved in several fights in prison. It was running a gang or he was in charge of the uh, Aryan nation. You know, anything could come out of yeah. it. What you basically have to do in that environment as an animal to survive, you have to do. So it was a weird place for me to be in as a person, knowing that I got to get back to my family, mm-hmm. but I also have to survive and get through this. So it was weird. I did it. I got through it. And again, you can be in there and think you're the baddest motherfucker in town. Uh, believe me, that won't fly in that atmosphere because if you take six guys to pin you down and rape you and to show you, look, bro, it ain't like that here. Mm-hmm. It's all about respect in that world. And and I again, from my background as a bodyguard and from knowing as a bouncer how to deal with people, I was large. And I think just that alone, if you're cool and you're, you know, from martial arts training, you know, you have a certain 
jihad centered you're you know you you can project without projecting yeah. that you're probably a dangerous individual might not want to mess with them and i would again just like on the street make people feel comfortable not feel like i'm threatening them so you know you, we got through all that went back and the judge after all that uh decided um I think I came back with a good report. The other guy that was with me came back with a bad report. So now here's the judge going, great. One guy is no problem. This other guy there thinking he is going to be a problem. How do I sentence them separately? They did it together. It was Matt's idea. Yeah. You know, he brought this other guy in. So I think what they ended up doing because of the technicality, when it came time to sentence me, they put the gun in his hands during sentencing. Uh, vice versa, when they sentenced him, then the gun was in my hand. Uh, long story short, the detectives really went to bat for us. Um, and actually the one lead detective on my case, like I said, had told me, you guys have no idea. We, we were, we heard this painting was heading to Europe and apparently what happened the same time we had taken that painting in LA, there was a theft at the Louvre in Paris of these top rate art theft, uh, gangs. And they thought it was the same guys that did it here in LA. Ah. So they're dealing with Interpol and they're calling Mexico and they hear the paintings moving across the border, all this stuff I didn't know about. And then they, like you said, then we come to find out it's, a, it's you, Matt, with this ridiculous movie that you were playing out in real life. And this stunt man, two complete novice morons that had pulled off this, this, you know, I, I, lucky or whatever. It could just because that's the way I am. I'm so meticulous, but it was what it was. But anyway, they went to the bat of the judge and said, look, these guys are, you know, just goofy guys. They made a mistake. You know, we should go light on them. So, again, we ended up, I think, just getting one year into the county jail, which is absolutely unheard of. Wow. Um, and again, it could be this is Los Angeles. It was an election year. This is a time to stop not letting the little upper class whiteies uh, get off while the brothers who are in there for shoplifting are going to get sent to 20 years. Mm. I mean, you know how the racism that you know how it is. Yeah. So. And and again, very, very fortunate uh, to have been given that pass, basically. Um, I ended up having to go back and just finish three more months in the county jail. And then I was, uh, came out and, and, and back to my family. And what happened was my oldest daughter, Courtney, was born May 30th of 92. I went into custody June 30th. So for the first six months of her life, I left my wife. She went back home up to Oregon to live with her parents while I was gone. So, I mean, again, it's it's like the worst possible uh, thing that you could go through with a stupid-ass decision to do that and how it affected people. Um, and uh, came back out, and then it was 92, and then just went back into doing um, some security work and then just trying to get, you know, more acting. I think that's when I landed uh, the, the JAG. I think you guys have seen... I was in, or let you know, I was in the pilot of the TV show Jag. Mm -hmm. I I played a little part of a Serbian soldier in that. That's how I got my Screen Actors Guild card. Ah, okay. And so it was from that that part. Now, prior to Jag, I had legally changed my name, which is why we get into the bad hand and what my yes. current name yeah. is. Um, and I did that at that time. I don't know if it was a, because I wanted to put that behind me. It was a shame. I shamed my family name, the hand and name. So I thought, you know, uh, let me just bury that. And then maybe if people start, if I'm looking for work, they maybe won't find that. I'm stupid. Of course they can always find your name through background checks. But, um, so I legally changed my name to Caritas, which I invented just because I wanted something more ethnic as an actor. And I wanted a K in there because I felt K was a little harder. So Caritas, I came up with that name. 
And that became my screen actor's name, Matthew J. Caritas. And um, off I went back in trying to get work, but nothing really came to fruition. And I went kind of, uh, again, in a, down, a downward spiral and uh, things weren't working out and started hanging around uh, the wrong crowd again. And um, uh, trip to prison number two uh, materialized, uh, dealing with... Uh, a friend that had been into and what has become that identity theft and that kind of stuff yeah. was just beginning back then. And they was like, Hey man, all I need you to do, I just need your name. And then I'll open some accounts in your name. And I know exactly what's going on. I know it's not right. I know it's wrong, but again, I'm not getting any work. I, I can't seem to be getting a break. And I'm, it, it's like anybody like in the inner city, you start selling drugs because these guys are driving Mercedes and you think, well, I could either starve or I could do this. And again, I crossed that line. And and uh, started making poor decisions again, and uh, that led to uh, another arrest and conviction, and this time a longer sentence of two years that I had to spend in uh, state prison. Mm-hmm. And again, um, that's where I think my life being in there longer that time, and again being in the prison setting longer, going deeper into the prison system. I mean, I ended up because of my custody level from the first uh, armed robbery uh, years before here in California. They consider that a strike. I don't know if you're familiar. They have a three strike law. You get three strikes, you're in for life. Oof. So when you have a strike and you're on a new sentence, my the second sentence was uh, I think it was uh, grand theft larceny or something, something to do because the, the credit card or some checks would come to my mailbox and it, it was considered a federal offense. I don't know. They had like 30 charges. They put them all down to just grand theft, whatever. But the original sentence was 32 months. But because I had been in prison before for uh, the uh, sentence of the armed robbery, they double your sentence. So I, now I had to do 32 months at uh, 16 months was my sentence. They doubled it to 32 months and you have to do 80% of your time. So, which turned out to be two years. Yeah. So off to prison, I go again, the second time custody level is higher. Uh, I ended up, they have level yard qualifications. They have level four yards, which are for your most heinous, you know, and then it goes down to a level three, level two and level one, depending on the points and what they consider you. Yeah. So I had level, I think, and to start level three points. So I ended up on a level three yard and, uh, Again, nothing like, again, losing your freedom, again, disappointing your family, friends, not only myself. Um, and it's just a real soul-searching time. It's like, where in the fuck have I ended up after all, you know, mm-hmm. the hopes and dreams like I've taken you through, which is kind of why I wanted to give you a background. It's like to show you how quickly <laughs> life can just uh, head the wrong way. And um, here I am locked in a cell with a guy who's doing double life terms mm-hmm. for murder. And here I am coming in. What am I going to cry? Oh, wow, I got two years. Oh, poor me. You know, it's like, it's just, it's an amazing uh, thing to experience. Yes, as an actor, you could say, oh, what a great experience. You can use that <laughs> in your, you know, if you ever want to be. It's like, really, I don't think I needed to go down that road uh, to imagine. But I do believe it has made me the kind of person I am now, very dark. I think there's a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress that's in me that makes me um, kind of reclusive like I am now and pulled out of society, kind of like we talked about working out at hours, not around people, yeah. you know, completely left behind the entertainment industry. But again, it was uh, another situation where you got to get through two years 
of, again, if someone wants to come and stick you on the yard, you got to defend yourself. But I'm trying to get back to my wife and my daughter and my other newborn, again, who was conceived while I was out on bail. So, again, here we are. All my kids seem to be involved in being born around criminal times. Oh, no. uh, my poor wife, uh, who is a saint, um, I think it was a gift from God because it kept my wife I don't know, occupied during that time with a brand new baby girl. I had two girls, uh, thank God, because if they were boys, I probably would have spit out an Al Capone or another, who knows, from my <laughs> DNA, what the hell's going on. But So I went through the two years there, and again, it was a fine line. Don't get in any problems. Try to not get an ad charge of fighting. And again, you have to, in that environment, if things, and there were riots, and there were times and, and fights that broke out in the yard that... Uh, you know, you've got to uh, do what you have to do. And I was very, very fortunate to be able to avoid those situations, A, because maybe my custody level, eventually, once you go through classification, I was dropped down to a level one security. And while in that level three yard, I found out the best job you could possibly have in prison, in this particular prison, would you be in the firehouse, an actual firehouse that when you when they build a prison in a town here in, in California, the city says, we will let you build your prison, but we want you to have a fire department. And in that, we want two fire engines and five firefighters that will fight fires in our community, because then the state is basically supplying that as a, as a gift. And of course, we have all the, the amenities that this local town may not be able to afford, which is the jaws of life you know, things that you can cut people out of cars, this and that. Hmm. So out of 5,000 inmates in that prison, the warden only selects 10 people. So what do you think Matt does? Matt says, all right, I'm going to go for the gold. I'm going, my <laughs> life's been spectacular up to this point. Who would ever thought I'd work for Stallone and have the life that I did? Sure enough, I sent a couple requests into the, the firehouse, the warden. Um, and I think I was in that reception area for three months. I actually got transferred to a prison that was uh, outside of Soledad, which is a very heinous prison in Northern California. I was going to be transferred to a prison called Salinas Valley. I had packed up all my belongings. I thought, oh, well, I didn't get the firefighter job. I'm out of here. I basically, you pack up all your belongings. You, you send them down to the reception area where you get released, and they hold them, and you're going to be on the next bus when it comes. Yeah. I said, it was four in the morning. I said, one more time, I'm going to give one more chance. I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to ask the guard here to call the guys down there. He did. They answered. I spoke to the guy on the phone, a guy by the name of uh, Dick Grayson. He ended up uh, calling and stopping me from being transferred, which is an unheard of. Most people don't care in that environment. No one gives a shit about you. You're just a fucking number. You're a piece of shit. You're a convict. This guy really stepped up, and from whatever, and I think it was, again, he read my my files. They call it a C file. He knew that I'd worked with Stallone. Maybe he thought that was interesting enough to, to, to pull me in. You know what I mean? It was, again, yeah. that name, that being attached to me that was a saving grace. Uh, and he ended up pulling me over into that firehouse, and then that's where I ended up doing my time, which I would have to consider in, if you're going to be in prison, that would be that firehouse was considered the Ritz Carlton or the Four Seasons of <laughs> the prison. And you were outside of the actual prison walls, the, the electronic fences, um, which is a three yard. You were outside of the nearby one yard, which is basically just a fence. You could jump over it if you wanted to and run away, but you're in such a low custody. They hope you're not going to do that. I was outside of that in a firehouse with 10 other guys and we literally could just walk out the back of the firehouse and just leave. If I wanted to jump in a car, 
you know, but again, they, the warden is thinking, look, this guy looks like he's going to be a great candidate. And so for me, that's where I was fortunate to be able to come back to my family somewhat similar as mentally the way that I left because you were in an environment only having to deal with six guys. I did not have to deal with any correctional officers. Mm-hmm. And that to me was the hardest thing for me to deal with was not the inmates, not the violence not the threat of every minute you're wondering, watching your back. It was dealing with a guard that some of them, and I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them are sadistic. And it was the lack of control. Some guy saying, hey, fuckball, get over here, sit down, and you have to obey. You have to do what they say. That was hard for me being the ego, the, you know, the narcissistic Mr. Shot Caller, having to just subdue myself to be told when to shit, when to eat, when to brush your teeth. Uh, you know, take your hair out of a ponytail, whatever you had to do. And it was just a lot of guys that had that power, which they shouldn't, but they do. Yeah. And I'm not saying all of them, just like police officers, there's good and bad, but they have that power trip, that guy that was picked on. And now he's in a position to just tell you to, you know, get out, lick my shoe, whatever you got to do. You, you, you know, I'm not saying that happened, but that was the hardest thing for me to deal. Cause I worked alongside these guys. Yeah. as bodyguards, as and it was like, dude, if you knew me on the street, you wouldn't talk to me like this. And that's the respect that I speak of that I have such a admiration for. If the world was ran like prisons were run, you would have no problems because even though in the prisons there are the racial groups, the blacks, the Hispanics, the whites, if there's a problem and the black and the white have a problem, there are two guys that lead each of those packs. And that's the first two people that hear about the problem and they go meet face to face and they first try to deal with the problem instead of having a race riot. Yeah. And a lot of times they'll say, all right, your guy was out of line. We agree with you. You put him in check, you handle that or we will. And then that guy gets his ass beat down by his own race. You learn your lesson and life goes on. And it's just all about respect in there. Like I said, you could walk around and think you're the baddest motherfucker, but believe me, they'll pounce on you. They'll get you. And they'll they'll let you know you aren't hot shit. So it really is your demeanor in that environment and how you come out of there. So thankfully, I was able to go to that fire department, also be fortunate enough to have a guy that was in there with me at the same time who was an actual L.A. City firefighter who trained at the Academy of Firefighters. He he was in the riots in L.A. I don't know if you remember when we had the riots. Oh, yeah. riots. Yeah. He got injured. He hurt himself. And they said, you'll never work again. He became despondent. I believe he got into drugs, ended up shoplifting, and that's how he ended up in prison. So for me, what a, what a fortunate thing to be actually trained by a, someone who was an actual firefighter rather than Keiko or a little joker who was there before me that learned it from Vato Man or, you know, Big Bed Brother, you know, whatever. It was, it was an experience. When I left that firehouse, I actually was a firefighter. I worked my way all the way up to an engineer. I could do what I could do out here on the street and be a firefighter. But unfortunately, if you have a family, you can't do it because it's a, uh, you have to have a peace. I think you have to be a peace officer or whatever. But so finished that paroled in 2001 and um, back to my life and uh, obviously damaged goods. But um, basically just spent, um, I think the first part when I got out was getting back in shape. They did not have weights. In, in California prisons, they took them off the yard because guys were just paroling giant, huge, you know, physiques. And the governor at that time said, no more weights. I was lucky enough to be in the fire department. I created Jim by rolling up the fire hose, uh, by using pulleys, rescue rope. Um, I, I mean, I made a gym there basically for me. They had a couple 
uh, dumbbells that were hidden when the weights were finally confiscated within our fire department. So I stayed physically in shape. But when I came out, I just started eating and getting back up. I I think I went back up to 245, 250 pounds. Uh, met a gentleman while I was in there, and he told me, hey, if you ever want to get out, I have a great job. It's a union gig. You might want to check it out. And that's basically what I've been doing since then. So, again, I've made a great living from, again, that connection made in the worst possible environment ever. It's just yeah. about life and how things unfold, and you think it's the worst time, and it'll never get better. But there's always a reason, a purpose, and um, I think a plan that we're all on, and that's you know, fortunately where we're at now. And then that, of course, brings us to where we are now with this movie from 25 years ago. Popping up now has yeah. just opened up so many uh, opportunities. You just never know. I mean, I never would have thought, oh, here's how I'm going to get maybe back into the business or have an opportunity to maybe get a second shot uh, from this movie. I mean, never, <laughs> never would have ever thought that. So it's just amazing where we're at now. You've mentioned a couple of times as well about comedy gigs. How did you first get into that as well? I had done that. I met um, um, Andrew Dice Clay. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with him. Oh, yeah, totally, a, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's kind of a stupid. I act like you guys are on the moon. <laughs> Have you ever heard of autism? <laughs> um, I had met Andrew back when uh, Sly was hanging. It was Andrew was very popular back then, obviously, in the 80s. And as with Sam Kinnis and some of the other guys, he used to come over and see Sly. So I kind of knew Andrew a little bit from there, but I really got to know him at the gym, George's gym. Uh, because he started training there and he actually hired George to get him in shape for a couple of his comedy uh, gigs. And he, uh, again, a shout out to Andrew. Um, great guy. Um, I, I, I used to go to the comedy store, which is a, a, you know, a big comedy venue here in LA and the laugh factory. And I would perform at the open mic nights and um, I did quite well. Uh, again, it's another political environment. If you're good and you're not the friend of the guy that runs the club, you're not going to go on at 9 p.m. You're going to go on at 4 in the morning. And it's like, oh, really, I'm not going to perform for four people. So, And I didn't want to waste my material on four people. So, again, here I go into my own little world of I'm going to do it my way and this is the only way to do it. Andrew was kind enough. I mean, like I said, I would go in and do my open mics or I would go and perform. They'd put me on late at night. Now, all of a sudden... Andrew and I start hanging out a little bit more together. Kim and I would go down to the comedy store. Now the manager of the club's like, oh, Matt, hey, how you doing, man? Can I get you a drink? You know, trying to be my buddy. And I'm like, you know, really, don't do that. I mean, that, that to me just really pissed me off. Yeah. Because Andrew would say, all right, uh, I'm going to go up and then uh, Matt's going to go on before me. And they're like, absolutely, Andrew, whatever you want. <laughs> Matt, can we get you anything? And I'm like, just stop. Because all I really wanted was let me go and perform in front of 400 people. If I suck, you don't ever have to call me back again. If I do well, that's all I'm asking. Let me get up to bat. Let me hit the triple and show you I'm not asking for any favors. If I suck, I suck. But I know that I had something that I believe that I could connect with the audience. And as you can tell here, very uh, (laughs) verbal and storytelling and (laughs) Seinfeld-esque with my comedy. Uh, Andrew was a completely different style with his you know, insult, comic, and derogatory, very foul language, and so on. But it, he was a sweet, sweet guy. He's really a ten. I mean, his character is Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, you know that. But yeah. He's really, really a nice guy. We spent a lot of time together. He even actually during that time period, before I went in for my second uh, term in prison, um, had me come in and read. He had a TV show for a little bit on CBS called uh, Bless This House. I don't know if you guys ever saw it over there. He shot that with Kathy Moriarty, who was the uh, the lead in Raging Bull, the blonde girl. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. I'm not very famous. So he actually said, you know what, Matt, come here. Let me have you. There's a part here in this show I think, you know, you might be good for, which is an unbelievable gift for him to even offer to me. And that's, again, uh, to be given the opportunity by somebody, it was just amazing. So I think it ended up, it uh, was down to myself and another guy by the name of Don Stark, who, I don't know if you guys have the 70 show. I think that was a worldwide yes, yeah. TV show yeah. called that, that 70 show. He's the guy with the curly black hair, uh, the Pinciati, the neighbor. That's Don Stark. <clears throat> he and I both went in and read in front of network, which is another amazing thing for Andrew to put me in front of the head of networks and their head of casting. That if you're not right for that part, they've at least seen you and can go, Hey man, remember that guy that came in with Andrew? It just opens doors. Yeah. So a very, very generous thing that Andrew offered me. And, uh, they ended up, uh, Andrew thought it would be funny to have me because the character was, supposedly shy around women and, and couldn't, you know, it was very unawkward and, and uncomfortable in his own skin. And he thought, here's a nice guy. He's pretty good looking in good shape. It, I think that's funny to see you play the, Hey, I don't really know what you're talking about. You know, that kind of goofy <laughs> guy. Or they went with Don Stark's type and nothing derogatory against him. You know, the shorter kind of frumpy or more, you know, that's, that's who initially they went with, but what an honor, what a privilege to be able to uh, go in there and do that. And then I actually, um, helped Andrew on his, I think he did a comedy special, HBO special called uh, Dice Rules. I'm on the beginning of that. I walk him out um, in that same code. I think you've seen some of the teaser posters for uh, Samurai Cop 2. Yes, yeah. Um, that same, you know, I had that look and he thought, this would be cool. You go out in front of me and it'll look cool. So again, very generous. And I kept doing stand-up comedy. He and I lost touch after I went in. Uh, for my second term and um but i just kept coming out and that was my little hobby to go down to the clubs pop in uh perform just blow everybody away and be like dude where have you been and that's why i created the brian machiavelli character because uh -huh. i had to be at my age you know people he's good this guy's great where has he been so i thought let me come up with a character that's been in prison for 25 years and he's just recently paroled so that opened up a whole um a whole amount of material for me to tap into, but also give the audience an answer to, because either they're like, this guy must suck. He's almost 50. Why is he doing comedy? We've never heard of him, but he's great. Yeah. Uh, you know, did he suck or why all of a sudden? But if you say, my name is Brian Machiavelli. I just recently paroled from California state prison. It's like, whoa, okay. And I don't look like the average comic that's uh -huh. out here. So that was my little niche. Uh -huh. And again, I dealt with, my style of comedy is I perform it once and I'm done. I don't repeat it. I'm not really considered myself a comedian. Comedians travel city to city. It's a tough life, um, you know, club to club. I just go when I know this is ready and I think I've got 20 minutes or even at the point I'm at now with the Brian Machiavelli special, I, which I'm trying to still do. It's an hour. It's a comedy special. And I felt if I'm going to get back into show business, this is the way I think to do it. Why not do your special ahead of time? Why not try to, do the opposite of what you normally have to do, which is work your way up, get discovered, have somebody think, yo, he's good enough to do a special. Then they got to raise the money. Then they got to shoot it and put it on Comedy Central, Showtime, or HBO, whatever. Mm -hmm. I thought, let me just do it. I'll finance it myself, put it in the can, and then I'll put it out there because then I can own the material. It's not like these guys could steal a lot of my material because it does have to do with me and my personal life, but also I do the you know, as balloon, I do all those impressions and <laughs> I talk about working for him, so on and so forth. So it's hard for them to steal that. But that's been my passion for the last, I don't know how many years. Uh, and I've just done it on my own, but also kept 
making a living doing what I do, uh, working in the uh, the trade show industry as a uh, uh, kind of a liaison between management and uh, the union guys, which I'm a union member. I'm in actually three unions, Screen Actors Guild, uh, the 831 Trade Show Union, and I'm also a grip. Uh, uh, the grips, you know, they put up, they work on the sets, the television, yeah. and so on. Because I actually worked on the 70s show. A buddy of mine was the executive in charge of production and got me that job uh-huh. to allow me to work. And, and it was Carsey Warner production. So that, again, here I am being exposed to that 70s show, I mean, when that thing first started being around all those guys when they were unknowns, we also had, um, they had just finished Roseanne, but we had Whoopi Goldberg and Grounded for Life, a couple other shows on the CBS lot. So, again, that was hard for me to do because I liken that to an alcoholic that is a bartender. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to serve you the drinks. I want to be getting, you know, pissed with you uh, across the bar. <laughs> So for me as an actor to be behind the scenes watching them do what I always wanted to do and dreamed of doing, but I thought I'd destroy that and never would have a shot at it um, again because of the path that I went down. Uh, it was just hard. But um, I, like I said, it's it's been a great career for me what I'm doing now. And that's what's hard for me with Comic-Con coming up next week. Typically, like I said, everyone I work with now has no idea who Matt Hannon is or Samurai Cop. Mm-hmm. They know Matthew Caritas. And from this point on, and whenever those two names, like I said, mix, they're going to be able to say, wait a minute, is that you in that little <laughs> bikini? I guarantee you that'll be on my office door, blown up five times bigger than it should be. <laughs> but I have to come to grips and realize, you know, that it was what it was back then. Yeah. And like I sent you guys that, that photo from our recent Us magazine of all the uh, famous celebrities that have been caught in bikinis, which coincidentally <laughs> just came out. I thought, okay, at least I'm in good company. I mean, that's what people wore back then. Uh, I wasn't looking trumpy and dumpy. At least I looked somewhat uh, in shape. So I guess I pulled it off. But again, the ripping and ridiculing that are coming my way were part of the reason why I was like, do I really want to announce to the world I'm alive when this whole thing could come up in my past? And I think it's a blessing. I think it's something I got to, like Tina says, just embrace it. And I'm going to enjoy whatever comes from it. I know we're at least going to do the sequel. Uh, Greg's talked about even doing a third, but I'm like, let's not push it. Let's see if the fans can stomach <laughs> uh, my coming back. And it's like I said, it's going to give me hopefully the opportunity to uh, do a little bit better acting without the restrictions, which we could talk about later that happened during the filming of the yeah, first one. Yeah, of course. And uh, but you never, like I said, in life, opportunities come, and you you got to take advantage of them and be thankful. And and, and like right now, I'm just going to enjoy you know, the ride. It's been really fun and oh, I'm having yeah. a blast. I mean, who thought I'd be talking to you guys giving actually an audiobook commentary with you instead of an interview. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It's just yeah. it's fun. So, and it's like you could Greg release, Greg released a beautiful widescreen transfer of Samurai Cop on DVD. And then in a few months, it's coming out on Blu-ray too. And you've, you've worked with Greg and done some of the extras for the new release, haven't you? Yeah, we did an actual full-length commentary, and uh, he did a little interview, not to the extent what we're doing here, but there's stuff that's on there that, that I have seen or heard even through your guys' uh, shows and other podcasts talking about the movie, questions and wondering about what happened here, why this, why that, and that's all on that DVD that, uh, mm-hmm. or the Blu-ray that's coming out. That, that, so I think people enjoy that. I think it's going to be – I hope it's a treat, not just them listening to Baloney. But, and that's where I told Greg it's kind of – it's a weird spot for me to be in because 
when I let you know about certain things that all of you have wondered about, am I, am I giving away the magic and the beauty of Amir's movie? You know what I mean? Because yeah. now you may look at it differently. I don't know. And hopefully it's not that. Hopefully it's more like, like I am as a viewer when I watch behind the scenes. I love seeing things that I didn't know about or that's interesting to hear about. Yeah. Um, which I think will be hopefully something that they're going to want to see and hear. Oh, definitely. What can you tell the listeners about Samurai Cop 2? What, what are you allowed to say at the moment about it? At, at this point, I don't know um, anything. Again, it was hard for me to deal with. You know, Mark, you obviously had conversations mm-hmm. yeah. with Mark. Mm-hmm. He had done the premiere here in L.A. a year ago, and uh, I think that that time Greg had talked to him about doing a sequel, and of course they all thought I had passed away. And that was a real, real hard thing for me to deal with with Mark when I did come so you know back to life. Uh, because, you know, put yourself in Mark's shoes. He was ready to come back and, you know, he was wanting to get back into acting and he's the guy. And all of a sudden, guess what? The Samurai Cop's alive. Uh-huh. So it, it's hard for me and in no way, shape or form did I want to steal his thunder or take away that moment. And I've always told him from the beginning, I believe this should be a buddy cop just like it was when we did it. We were, it was a lethal weapon, supposedly, uh, ripoff. Of course, Amir took it in a different direction, but... <laughs> I think the beauty of him and I together is what I enjoyed. But again, I have no control, and I think they already had a script pretty much set up, and, and Greg's been more than kind and accommodating, letting me give my thoughts. Because like I said before, there's a million directions we could go in. 25 years have gone by. So many backstories. What what would Joe be doing? Or you know, And again, it's not really what Joe would be doing because it was me. There was never any backstory, as you can see on screen, of Samurai Cop, where Amir sat down and said, oh, this is his story. All we knew is he came from San Diego. And action. And basically, all the rest is just mad deer head, you know, deer in headlights (laughs) trying to muddle his way through and the frustrations and all the problems that I went through. But um, so hopefully, I think this, I think, like I said, the number one thing, it should be made for the fans And, and all egos aside. You know, marks or mine or thinking whatever we think. It's we got to just stay true to um, what that movie was, and hopefully, uh, Greg's got a fantastic vision of what he thinks it should be. And I'm going to trust again with the director and their vision. And I think, I think it's going to be fine. Like I said, you guys have seen some of the posters. Oh yeah, the, yeah, the, the posters. You know, brilliant. It's crazy for me to be doing again. You know, like I said, three weeks ago, and all of a sudden I'm in a studio shooting these photos and doing what I'm doing, and it's kind of like really. Who would have thought? But uh, it's it's uh, I, I just think it's going to be fun. And I think he's assembled a great cast of people. I don't know if he's released that list of people. Yeah, it looks possible d- people that incredible, will incredible. Yeah. I mean, of course, I'm leading more looking towards the leading men. That, uh, I mean, leading women that he's uh, selected <laughs> or his leading men. Uh, which I don't know if you know some of the girls on that list. But again, it's like uh, who wants to really see a 50 year old man? rolling around? But whatever. Uh, we'll see where it goes. And like I said, it's at the end of the month we'll be having some meetings and going over some, the, the script. And, and then I, I believe he wants to start shooting. I think, unless I'm giving stuff away, I think in November coming up pretty quick, uh-huh. we'll, we'll get on. So I think he's trying to time it. So the release is next June, which would be the actual 25 years since we started principal photography with Amir on that, which was 1990, June of 90. Yeah. That's a great idea to really tie it in with that silver anniversary. Well, well, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. Again, it's the coincidences and the timing and the, you know, whatever, like I said, finally coming forward. And it, it just, it seems to all be working out great. And, and like I said, I just want to take it 
but small step at a time. Obviously, like I said, you never know where it could go. But right now, my main thing is let's just at least do a great sequel. And if that's all I end up doing, plus the commentary, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it opens doors or something else, or Greg's already had some ideas of doing other things after this um, with me and some of the other girls, you know, and, and even Mark, just different projects for, you know, for me, uh, uh, something on the lines of Mr. and Mrs. Smith or, hmm. you know, whatever. There's there's different things that would showcase things that I could do other than whatever that samurai cop character <laughs> is with the hair and so on and so forth. But, uh, and I was actually just getting ready to start cutting that down and not letting it be so long because at 50, it's a little ridiculous, but through the years, that's kind of just become what I'm known for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the ex-wife is, you know, when are you ever going to cut that hair? And <laughs> people, you know, you're always hearing, Hey man, uh, the eighties call, they want their hair back or, you know, just, <laughs> but it's just what I was comfortable doing. And again, that's just me, being me. but, uh, we'll see. I mean, it's just, we'll see where this ends up heading. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you should mention about coincidences because it's only through IMDB making a mistake and listing it as 1989 for so many years that we had initially came across the movie. You know, they've, it's only, oh, really? yeah, it's only within the past few weeks that they've corrected it and they've put 91 on there. So like we, we thought it was like an eighties movie and we picked it as our movie of the week and loved it. And then, you know, we've been raving about it ever since. So yeah, it's just so another, special another... consideration, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just another one of those really weird coincidences, you know, that's, you know, what has led us to this evening, you know, it's, it's very strange, but very enjoyable. Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, again, I'm in the middle of it and it's maybe at the end or then you can look at back at it and look at it more for what it is. But right now I'm just kind of caught up in the tidal wave and I'm just riding it, but it, it is, <laughs> it's just strange. And, and, you know, you just wake up every day wondering where is it going to go? And, and, uh, again, like I said, being able to do interviews or speak with you guys just allows me, if this is the only window of opportunity, and some people may say, wow, you divulge maybe too much. It's nothing that I'm ashamed of. Again, I did what I did and I've done wrong and I've done good and there's been highs and lows. And I think everybody out there has their life. Everybody's got a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine's no special. I mean, maybe just because of the connection with Stallone, but everybody's got a story. And, and uh, it's just weird to be where we're at now and, and to be able to, uh, you know, get it out there and at least explain and, and talk about, especially the filming, what went on. Oh yeah, <clears throat> during that. Well, we'll get onto that for the, for the listeners. We we're going to carry on talking to Matt. We're going to go into all the, the talk about Samurai Cop. Uh, for you as a listener, um, it's it's the end of this show. Uh, I know we're going to carry on talking with you, Matt, but because it's the end of this episode, yep, it's, it's the end of the episode. We want to thank you for for this segment of, of it. You know, for being you've been so open and honest and and entertaining as well. You know, we really appreciate everything that you've told us today. No, it's been my pleasure. And like I said, uh, anything you need to edit out to make this under a seven-hour show, you know, my, <laughs> no problem with me. I understand completely. But no, it's been great, guys. And like I said, I've, I've enjoyed listening to your guys' uh, commentaries, and especially Ramrod and, and you know both of you together. It's just been fun listening, and I think you guys have a great, um, a great show here. And I appreciate having the uh, opportunity to be able to to share stuff. Oh, it's very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Tom, do you want to close this one off and let the listeners know how they can find us online? Yep, sure thing. Our website is 80spicturehouse.co.uk. Our Twitter is at 80spicturehouse. Facebook is .com forward slash 80spicturehouse. And if you want to email us, it's contact at 80spicturehouse.co.uk. Right, and uh, we'll be back, well, with the next episode, just a few days after this one, where we'll be talking all about Samurai Cop with Matt.
All right, guys. Cheers. Thank you. 